the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Yep, it's rain day. Big rain starting to be reported from areas of the west of the state. If that is you, I would love to know how much has fallen. What it means for you are the breaks on harvest now. Tell me what you're concerned about. Tell me what it means. Is it something that could blow over? Would love all of that information on farm for you right now. You can send a text 0467 842 722 or indeed give us a call 1300 977 Would love to hear from you about what these heavy rains mean, particularly at this time of year. I know it can be difficult if you're trying to get harvest in and not only that, if you're trying or getting closer to harvest of things like cherries and stone fruit as well. So let me know what's happening. 0467 842 722. Also today, uh, the National Dairy Group representing dairy farmers, Australian dairy farmers, is in disarray after all the Victorian members of the board, which is over half, have been axed right at the time when they're meant to be voting on the president's position for ADF, the current ADF president will join you to tell you all about what is happening shortly on the program. We'll get to that in a moment. We'll also go, well, stripping some crops with 1930s equipment. That just sounds fun, doesn't it? I can't wait to bring you that story today on the program as well. All of that and more coming up. This is The Country Hour right now. Jane McNaughton has rural news for you. Jane. Good afternoon, Was. It's drought-breaking rain. That's the verdict from one farmer in northern New South Wales who recorded 116 millimetres overnight. This is the area currently in drought and intense drought, according to the Department of Primary Industries. But the recent thunderstorms have been patchy, with some farmers still hoping more rain is on the way. James Goldsmith conducts winter cropping, merino sheep and cattle on his farm 50 kilometres north of Coonamble, and he says the dams have nearly filled up overnight. It means a hell of a lot. Uh, we had dams going dry, stopped getting bogged, all sorts of things like that. The, the water's running. Um, dams have nearly filled up overnight. There's, there's water running out of the paddocks everywhere. Our grass cover has still been very good, um, you know, through our stocking rates and all that sort of thing. But, uh, yeah, which which will turn us around very quickly because, yeah, things are even – we've had small little falls sort of for this month, you know, only six mils here, nine mils there, and um, which started to green things up. And uh, and this will just carry it on and, and, yeah, the feed will get away on us now. During a Q&A session for Peak Industry Body Meat and Livestock Australia's Updates Conference and Annual General Meeting, which was held yesterday, farmers were expressing their anger at the federal government's commitment to phase out live sheep exports from Australia by sea. Australian Livestock Exporters Council Chief Executive Mark Harvey Sutton said he was surprised at the level of concern coming from states like Victoria. Having a policy like this is impacting confidence in the market right across Australia. The government has been very quick to dismiss this and we know that there are other factors contributing to a price drop but if you have a policy hanging over your head saying we're going to shut down a proportion of the industry well that's not going to help confidence one bit and we know that that's a common sense thing to to know and I think what was very stark today in hearing those questions this morning is that even here southern Victoria a prime sheep producing region that largely goes into the box trade the live export phase-out is impacting it here as well. So I think uh, it's very important the government takes note of this. I think what agriculture and all of agriculture is saying, well, this will set a precedent for every industry. 
if you shut down an industry for political purposes, what is next? Who will be next? Because every industry, every agricultural industry has some form of social licence challenge. And we'll hear more about Meat and Livestock Australia's Updates Conference and Annual General Meeting, which was held yesterday in Bendigo later in the program. How much are you willing to pay this year if you're after a Christmas lobster? It's likely more than last year, according to those in the industry. While tariffs on rock lobster by the Chinese government are still in place, prices have increased modestly as other markets have stabilised. Andrew Ferguson, Managing Director with South Australian exporter and retailer Ferguson Australia, says quality has been particularly good this year. Just because the beach price has been higher and fishermen have caught pretty well, they've caught you know, probably 50% of their quota. Some, some are finished, actually. Yeah, they're a bit choosy about when they go fishing. If the price drops you know, below a certain amount, they, they stop fishing and you know, it just causes the, the, the price to go up a bit. I mean, this is, this is without China, of course. As uh, you just mentioned, the industry is hopeful that China will be coming back on board before Christmas. Uh, If that was to happen, how immediate would there be a change in prices? Oh, it's a good question. I, yeah, look, it's it's sort of, I've I've just been to China a couple of times lately and and I just don't see China the place it was three or four or five years ago. So some areas are struggling a bit and maybe, you know, it might have a, a huge effect. I know there's a lot of other product going into China that's never there before to, to replace our product. So, you know, we've got to sort of find, a, find ourselves when we go back there. So it might not be quite as good as we were expecting. And it can be challenging growing up with a disability in rural Australia. 17-year-old Sam Lafleur has Down syndrome and grew up on a cattle property near Charters Towers in northern Queensland. And despite the challenges, he's found success in the world of competitive athletics and has made some friends along the way. Lucy Cooper reports. In just 12 months, Sam went from schoolboy to an Australian record holder and then a competitor at an international competition taking part in the Virtus Games in France five months ago. It was absolutely amazing. I was terrified because I've never really travelled much before, but even the build-up to going, the whole community got behind Sam. Sam competed in the 100 and 200 metres sprint, shot put and long jump, and he walked away proudly with a bronze medal. You got this in France? (laughs) Was there lots of people? Was Mum screaming? (laughs) Me, Ethan, dancing. You and Ethan were dancing. You're supposed to be running. <laughs> <laughs> and that's today's Rural News Watts. Thank you very much for that. Jane McNaughton there with Rural News. A lot of your rainfall texts coming in. Keep them coming. Tell us what it's doing at your place and what it means for, for what you're up to as well because I think that's the important information for us all to hear as well. Uh, Greg from downtown Lower Norton says, G'day, was 44 millimetres at Lower Norton. Very bad timing. Wind still in the east here. Thanks for that, Greg. G'day, was the last paddock of sorghum is going in before the big rain at Gundowring. Send it down, Huey, says Leo. You're not the only send it down, Huey. Texter, Leo. We've got Craig in Cobden as well. He says, harvest is done. Every drop of rain here is pennies from heaven. Send it down, Huey, says Craig in Cobden. I'd imagine that's a lot of your hay and silage then done, Craig, isn't it? So that gives you more grass growth. Eight millimetres at Durham Ox. Uh, We've had 11 millimetres in an hour and a half at Bulgana for Chris and uh, 32 millimetres at Pomonal. More to come. Cleaning out drains to to hold water on the block 
says uh, this text as well. Keep them coming, 0467 842 And in the meantime, we'll try and uh, learn about what's going on in the dairy industry together because it seems the Victorian representatives on the board of Australian dairy farmers have been ousted this week just at an important time to vote in new leadership and uh, also uh, run the organisation, for which represents dairy farmers on a national level, with Victoria being the largest dairy state, producing more than half of the dairy in Australia, uh, not having any representatives on the board. Although I'm not exactly sure where things are up to. Rick Gladigo, the president of Australian Dairy Farmers, can join us to tell us more. Rick, welcome to the program. Good afternoon, Warwick. Good afternoon, listeners. What has happened to your Victorian members? I'll just have to correct your first part is that we do we haven't they haven't removed the Victorian uh, members off the board. They've actually removed the national councillors that they have that they had appointed. So what does that mean? So what it means currently is that it's still businesses for us. We can still carry on. We still can do our role. For, you know, obviously there's been other media saying we're in chaos and all this kind of talk, which is totally incorrect. We're not in chaos at all. We, uh, we can still function, but, but what we're doing is to say, okay, look, there's been a lot going on in UDV uh, over the last you know, probably five weeks of uh, they had, uh, you know, the policy councillors, most of the policy councillors resigned. Um, they've gone through an election process. They've got some new policy councillors. They had another election process to decide on the terms of those people um, and also on the president and Bernie Free, which uh, come out on Monday, they announced, uh, you know, Bernie as UDV president and uh, announced five other policy councillors from the three different regions. Um, and then we also got notification that they were removing the existing ADF national councillors. And, and they have this, and this is their right because the national councillors at ADF are, are appointed by the, you know, the regions nominate them, but um, in that case, because Victoria has three regions that uh, the VFF um, also has to uh, agree to that as well. But um, so we're sort of going, okay, look, we've delayed our president election. We had a really good AGM yesterday. It went really well. Um, but we've delayed our president election. We've sort of, we've done the olive branch to say, look, you know, we you know, we, we certainly would like some representation here from Victoria. We'll give you some extra time to, to do that uh, and hopefully uh, we will receive some notification fairly soon to say here's our, uh, here's our uh, people we're putting forward as the, the national councillors. So the effectively your organisation has been drawn into the infighting currently going on in the Victorian Farmers Federation. Yeah, look, it's... <laughs> It's just part of, part of what's all going on. Obviously, they're, they're working through a few things there internally. That's up to them. As I said, national councillors, are, you know, their role is to appoint ADF national councillors. It's not up to us, and they need to work through that. We have just said, look, hey, you know, we would like to have them on board. We want Victoria representation. The, the good side of it still is we still have our policy advisory groups. Uh, we still have every region in Victoria represented on the three different policy advisory groups. So they're still there. Um, that they're appointed through our process, not through the, through the uh, regions um, or through the, through the States as well. So they're still there. They're still all part of ADF. It's business as usual for us to continue on. We're just saying, look, you know, please 
you know, put these nominations forward. We want Victoria part of the tent. We, you know, VFF is still our our uh, state representative for Victoria. So the 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 people for the the National Policy Council that the Victorian Farmers Federation have pulled essentially uh, their positions from from your organisation. They're people that left to organ to join the new Dairy Farmers Victoria group. Is that your understanding? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so those eight, I think there was eight people. I think they have more than that on their their actual policy, or they did have more than that on their actual policy council. But there were eight eight people, and all of them have yeah, have obviously joined DFV. But uh, as far as we are aware, they are also members of UDV still. So, so they could have stayed on ADF. But as I said at the start, it's up to VFF. UDV as to who sits there, and you know that's that's their prerogative. Is it right that it's up to them to decide if they're not paying the bills that you currently have before them? <laughs> well, Constitution says that they uh, they have the right to decide as national councillors are. Um, uh, have they look, paid their bills recently? No, they haven't. We're, we're, How much do they owe you? Um, they owe us a lot of money, so it is, it is growing rapidly. At and um, we're now twelve months without actually having a payment from them. So, uh, so, and, and we're talking hundreds sort of, of thousands of dollars here. Yeah, right? we're, in the, we're in the hundreds of thousands now. So, um, we we have actually written back to uh, VFF only just over three weeks ago, and uh, and asked once again. You know, we want to we want to get to a media. We want to get this sorted. We want to work through it get it done and let's get on with, with what we do in, in advocating for dairy farmers in Australia and especially even Victorian dairy farmers, which we're still doing, but we'd really like to get this sorted out. So given the VFF aren't paying the, and UDV aren't paying their bills to, to you as a national body, the Australian dairy farmers at the moment, is there any chance in the future that you could decide as an organisation to break with the VFF, UDV and um, side up with another dairy lobby group in Victoria? Uh, the board hasn't even discussed that. At this stage, the board's working through it saying, as I said, we've written back again saying, let's mediate. We, know, we want to mediate. We want to work through this. Um, if uh, And so that's that's where our board position is. If the board now you know, goes, we need to do something else, well, the board will make that decision in due course. But um, you know, the, the issue here, I think we said probably last time, is... The UDV members have paid the member the money, that extra money, to go to ADF. It's just the VFF haven't been forwarding it on. And they're keeping it for themselves? Is that your... Well, that's my understanding. It's sitting on their balance sheet. Uh, well, Rick Gladigo, thanks very much for joining us and explaining what's happening. <laughs> thanks, Warwick, and uh, thanks for having me on. It's hard to navigate the internal workings of lobby groups sometimes. That's Rick Gladigo, who's the president of Australian Dairy Farmers. Let's go to Mark Billing, who's one of those ousted members, uh, did leave to create Dairy Farmers Victoria, but remained a UDV member so he could continue to sit um, on the ADF. Mark Billing, um, listening to that, it's a mess, isn't it? Yeah, afternoon, Warwick. Look, it's such a shame that we're talking about this rather than policy and you know advancing dairy farmers' views um, in Victoria and across across the nation, but uh, it is disappointing. Um, I think the the most disappointing thing for me and for the, the eight of us that were removed uh, or had our membership revoked by VFF. Um, so, have you had your membership of the VFF revoked? No, I haven't. Um, and as you say, and, and it's been pointed out that uh, those of us that wanted to still represent Victoria 
uh, at the ADF level have um, up until this point remained VFF members. I know that um, a number of the eight that have been removed by VFF um, are, are cancelling their membership as we speak um, because there's really no point now um, to keep membership and, and represent at ADF level. Um, but as Rick's just pointed out, there are four of us that um, still operate in the policy advisory groups within ADF, so still um, participating in policy development, which is, the, in my view, the, the aim of the game, is the policy and advocacy of all of this. Um, so, yeah, we to, to remain... It's a bit of a tricky situation. We have to remain a member of VFF at the moment because VFF is the member of ADF, as um, Rick pointed out, and apologies for all the acronyms. But um, the way we were dismissed by VFF was pretty um, upsetting, um, particularly for two of our members who actually aren't sitting on the Dairy Farmers Victoria um, Committee, um, but uh, our members, they've put a lot of time and effort into the National Council over a number of years, as we all have, um, but just to find out in a roundabout way that we'd been dismissed on Tuesday, we got an email on Wednesday um, to say that our services are no longer required. And it was um, just a bit disappointing in the way it happened, but um, in some ways, too, it just enables us now to focus all our efforts into Dairy Farmers Victoria in the short term and, and let the dust settle between VFF, as has been pointed out, haven't been paying their bills, um, and hopefully they can sort that out through mediation in the near term. Um, but, yeah, we... I've always, when I say we, Dairy Farmers Victoria have, have always supported the concept of Australian dairy farmers and, and the work that they've been doing. It, it's a result that I'd imagine you would have expected at some level, though. You did, you and a group of dairy farmers have formed a split in the organisations and this is a way for the VFF to fight back, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I, that, that is a, a fair comment. So, it, look, I'm surprised that it actually has taken so long, to be honest. I think the timing was a bit sinister. Um, the day before the ADF AGM, um, I think it was time to, to create um, create some issues for ADF, which I think was a bit unfair. But, um, look, it's happened, um, and we need to move forward. And, you know, as I said at the start, it'd be much better if we were talking about great policy outcomes and good advocacy rather than... The, the twos and throws of the, the Australian dairy industry. Yep, but I'm glad you fronted up all the same. Have you had much rain, Mark Billing? Um, still praying. Um, <laughs> it, it's, look, um, we're dry. We're drying off really quickly. Um, I heard uh, Craig from Cobden's comments about um, Senator Dan Huey. Yes, please. Our summer crops are looking a little bit ordinary. Our pasture's finishing up real quick. Um, so really looking forward to the 10 to 20 that the Bureau's forecasted. So when the Bureau's on Warwick, um, yeah, if you could get a... Um, Get an update for Kyle. That'd be awesome. <laughs> Personalised weather reports. We're always here for that. Mark Billing, thank you for joining us on the program. Mark Billing there from Dairy Farmers Victoria now. Uh, that organisation talking about what's happening in terms of the membership of the National Dairy Lobby. We're spending, and it feels like far too much time talking about infighting in Victoria's farm lobby groups, but it's important at some level, and that's why we'll continue to do so. And you can always take part. 0467 842 722. If you want to send us a text, you can do the same. With rain, plenty of that going in. And wow, way 82 millimetres northeast of nil. Harvest half done. Not good timing is what that text says. Huge numbers around nil. Uh, g'day, was Nathan from Karen Ballack south here. Rain not all bad here where our wheat is still green. And could go another one or two tonne a hectare on already very promising crops. Love that information, Nathan. I love you telling us 
where you're up to as well. Thank you for that. Chris, 35 millimetres up at Carowina. Clint says, G'day, was Huey missed here? Five millimetres west of Hadhar. That's interesting, Clint. Thank you for telling us that. 30 millimetres between 4 and 9am, making it 30.5 for November for Horsham West with Doug. Thank you very much for that, Doug. Uh, keep them coming. I'd love to see your rainfall figures coming in. 0467 842 722. One more before we talk Canola Warwick. Beautiful 15 millimetres of soaking rain at Morella. Uh, with some forecasts putting another 50 tonne of chukpoo out today. Stock prices will now increase with a green tinge, will help reduce the fire risk. But sadly, more good farmland has gone overseas with this last downturn, says Rusty on the text line. Uh, Keep the texts coming. We'll get to them as they come in. Uh, Let's talk about canola right now. Is it worth participating in a canola sustainability certification scheme if it involves a lot of paperwork and only earns you a few extra dollars a tonne? The International Sustainability and Carbon Certification gives Australian growers access to European Union biofuel markets. But Julia Hoisler, a farmer in northern Wimmera region and director of Grain Growers, says while she has gone through the ISCC process, farmers shouldn't underestimate how much work that involves. There was a conversation going around on um, X about you know the process or what, what is the value of, of um, joining the scheme. And there was a comment in there about it's quite easy for growers to do, so why wouldn't you participate? And that's, that's where I joined the conversation because I'm going to push back and say, I, I don't think it's easy. It's time consuming and look, it's doable, but easy is not a word I would describe to say. So there's a 40-question checklist to see whether you want to enter the um, program in the first instance. And then within that 40-question checklist are 13 embedded forms that also need to be filled out. So it is very complex and a lot of components to uh, complete to be able to say, I'm eligible for the ISCC. Some of those things growers would just know. They would have, you know, at their fingertips, like their farm summary and their farm waste management, the chem inventory, you know, those sorts of things they might have um, very readily ava- available. But it's other things like a biodiversity and pollinator plan or your energy and air pollution plan or even your environmental impact statement. Some of those things might take time and effort and more data to collect that is not necessarily in a usable form, potentially in a lot of farm software. So that was kind of my purpose of joining the conversation last week was to say, I don't think that, you know, it's just something that should be sort of a flick and tick sort of suggestion by anyone in the trade or by anyone who's advising growers because it is a, a process that is quite um, convoluted with a lot of steps. Now, for our farm, we've chosen to do that because uh, I think it's good to, uh, you know, test where your, your systems are at actually and know what data you have. And, and I feel going forward with a net zero kind of focus all around us um, in, in our country and internationally that we're probably going to have to do a lot more of this reporting going forward. But it's also, I think, really important for growers to make that judgment call for themselves as to what time they've got and how much effort they've got to put into this Um, because it isn't, as I said right at the beginning, it's not easy. Now, I know in that Twitter or or X thread that you mentioned, there was some commentary that there there can be a pretty minimal price difference between canola that, that does and doesn't have this certification. Yeah, so that I joined the thread of commentary that was already being put out there around that price point. You know, that's up for individual growers to decide what sort of price 
point they need or what premium they need to enter the scheme versus the time and effort required to fill out the paperwork. So, um, yeah, I think <laughs> it's it's knowing what the process is and knowing how onerous it is and then valuing that. So for some of the growers, which is the thread that I joined, they were saying that the effort was not worth the reward for them. As I said, our farm, we've gone down this pathway uh, because uh, we, we think there is a reward. So for you, it's not right now about necessarily accessing a big price premium as much as it is uh, demonstrating your, your Enviro credentials? Well, I think it's just making sure our house is in order so that uh, with, with I think, what will be increasing emissions reporting and requirements and sustainability reporting and requirements, et cetera, that um, we're probably all going down this path. Whether the ISCC is the right platform that remains out, and I know there's industry studies at the moment um, being undertaken in Australia to actually look at that. Uh, but right now, that is that is the first port of call, and that is the the market um, for a, a big market for Australian canola. And on that point, it does seem a, a pretty widespread assumption that yes, these sorts of things people will have to deal with more in the future, won't they? I mean, we heard from Tim Inkster from the Wallapag Group just been to the Netherlands to look at some of the the restrictions that farmers over there are contending with. So that's uh, more and more of those uh, compliance measures are going to be put in place, aren't they? You would think so. But that's why I also like, think it's important for growers to also speak out and say, you know, what is doable and what is uh, a task and to vote with their feet at the silos as to whether or not they think there's value in participating. And we, we should also touch on the fact that if you do uh, go down the certification path, you can well be audited, can't you? And I think uh, there was one commenter in that thread who said he, he had been audited and and the, that audit was quite uh, strenuous. Yes, and we've been audited as well, um, Angus, and it is quite strenuous and more hours. You know, as I said, right from the onset, we've chosen to participate in it because I think that there's merit for our farm business to be in it. But, um, yeah, it's just about... Not not responding to flyaway comments that say it's easy or, you know, most growers have this uh, sort of record keeping at their fingertips. I, I think those kind of comments aren't helpful to the debate. That is Julia Heusler speaking there uh, about the problems with the ISCC canola and the uh, lack of a premier for the work there. She's also a grain growers director. Uh, and having a talk there to Angus Verley. You're listening to the Country Our Full Weather Report on the way. I was just looking at all your weather texts actually coming in with questions for the Bureau. We'll try and get to some of those for you. Before we head there, though, let's go to the regional newsroom who have Callum Marshall there for us today. Good afternoon, Callum. Good afternoon, Warwick. Victorian Premier Jacinta Allen says Corrections Victoria is working through the arrangements for the future of the Malmesbury Youth Justice Precinct after it closes. She says a film crew's access to the site, which is still operational, is a matter that has been handled appropriately by Corrections Victoria and that arrangements were made to secure the people who are on site separate to any other filming activity that might have taken place. Centre staff have questioned why filming couldn't wait until all young people had transitioned out of the facility, with the Shadow Youth Justice Minister saying it is totally unacceptable that the film crew is there at this time. Southwest Victorian police have pleaded with drivers to slow down and ignore distractions after an increase in the number of road deaths in the region this year. There have been 17 fatalities on Southwest roads since January, five more than last year. In an effort to curb the road toll, police will undertake a statewide road blitz throughout next month. 
Police have arrested seven people after searching tobacco stores in western Victoria, including in Horsham, Warwick Nabil, Stall, Ararat and Nil. The searches uncovered more than 134,000 illegal cigarettes, 43 kilograms of loose tobacco and more than 3,500 vapes, totaling more than $350,000. Among those arrested, a 40-year-old Melbourne man is expected to be charged for allegedly delivering illegal tobacco to a Horsham shop yesterday. The raids were part of a national operation targeting motorcycle gangs and criminal syndicates. And a new public IVF service has officially opened at Goulburn Valley Health today to support women and families across the Hume region. It will offer eligible patients services such as specialist consultations, diagnostic tests and ultrasounds. Eligible individuals must reside in Victoria, have a Medicare card and have a referral from a GP or specialists. Locals previously had to travel to either Melbourne, Bendigo or Albury-Wodonga to see a fertility service. And Warwick, that's the latest in news. For more, you can visit abc.net.au forward slash news. Thanks, Callum. Callum Marshall there with regional news headlines. The Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. All right, plenty of texts here. 48 millimetres over two days with some hail damage to the vineyard at Murbane South. That's awful to hear. Thank you for telling us the update, though, even at a difficult time. Stephen from Curwa says 32 millimetres in the gauge, lightning and body-crushing thunder here in Curlwa. So that is 45 millimetres over the last two days. Uh, 22 millimetres at Drumborg as well. Still raining, uh, says Chris. And looks like a chuka is going to miss most of the rain. Again? Heading to a wedding at 3pm. So I'd like to know, says Bo. Bo's starting us on the questions, right? We've got... Uh, a few coming in from many of you right now. Any rain going to actually head set to South Ballarat, says Maggie. No rain as yet. We've already had the question earlier about Colac. Got a lot of frustration for you on the lack of a Yarrawonga radar at the moment. It's been down for maintenance during this rain event. A lot of frustration coming in saying its current unavailability is creating headaches for croppers, says at least one text there. And there is one from Seymour uh, that says, Warwick, can you please ask the Bureau of Meteorology if there's going to be enough rain above Eildon to flood the Goulburn below Seymour? All of those questions are on the board, and I'll try and work my way through them. Listening to that has been Lincoln Trainer, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, and he'll try his best to answer some of those for you. Hi, Lincoln. Uh, hello, Warwick. Yes, absolutely. Uh, a lot of weather around and <laughs> yeah. here to support and help where I can. I know it um, really impacts people. So, yeah, what's on your mind? What, what do you want to tackle first? <laughs> well, you had a lot of things. We'll start with the Arawonga radar. That's offline. There's a lot of frustration around that over a few yeah. days. You're a senior forecaster. I can't imagine you're the guy who makes the decision on the Arawonga radar. No. But when is that likely to come back online? That, that's a great question. Let me, um, I'll take that on notice. Yep. Um, and I can go and investigate that. And also, I'll push that right up that that's a, a really important thing that needs to be rectified immediately. So leave it with me. And okay, then, rain wise today, where is the rain? clouds at where are the rain clouds at the moment and where are they moving and at what stages yeah the state that's today? really good well I, I suppose the first thing for people if they want to get a real uh, understanding of where the rain is is to go on to the latest warnings for the bureau and you'll see there's a currently a severe thunderstorm warning but that's related to you can have various types of warning it could be rainfall wind and other things like that but today it's a very it's heavy rainfall and that's for the Mal- 
Mallee, Southwest and Wimmera. So we're seeing all the rainfall there because the feature that's driving that is just sitting over the border in South Australia. It's this low-pressure system that's developing. Uh, it has um, an upper low-pressure system also over the top of it, so a really significant system that's driving a lot of rainfall into Western Victoria. So at the moment, the story is there's a lot of rainfall. We've even got a warning out relating to that rain. We have seen, as, as some of your callers said, some, like, look at looking at... Um, now, I don't want to say that. You're going to correct me on the names. Pigik? How do, you, how do I say that? I don't know. Yeah, we're just going with your uh, pronunciations today. Okay, just keep going. Right. Okay, that's 71 millimetres. Um, that's at Pigik comparison. Hillview, uh, 55 millimetres. Durang, uh, Durang, 51 millimetres. McNeil's Bridge, 42 millimetres. Rainbow Radar, Rain Gauge, 42 millimetres. Nil, 41. Uh, Apsley, 35. Like we, we are in the west. You know, you, you're seeing rainfall. No, the highest was 70. Uh, in the last 24 hours, but it's it's sitting around 25, you know, to 45 millimetres, and it's persisting, particularly in the Wimmera and and, and southern parts of um, the uh, Mallee. Uh, so the question is, where's what's What's do, where's this going to go? Well, it will slowly move east. Um, what we're thinking is it's it's quite quite convective. Um, and we're going to see some isolated storms and, and showers spreading kind of south across the state. Will Ballarat get a significant fall? It's hard to say at the moment. It's very scattered. It's very disorganised. Um, there's no kind of clear um, mechanism to be able to pinpoint a certain point, but definitely we're going to see in the afternoon with a bit of heating, a bit of convective activity around, and that kind of shifting from the north to the south. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if there was a bit of rainfall in some of those parts where people are looking for it, but I don't think it's going to be super significant. So Colac and Ballarat and so forth, are they likely to get rain today in this event? I'll look at my synthetic radar. I'm just kind of looking. There, There is some rainfall sweeping through those parts. Um, I'm just looking at the moment more... Yeah, this afternoon from about 2 p.m. So there is a bit of a rain band sweeping through the western half of the state and that will kind of wash out by 4 p.m. So between 2 and 4, there is a chance of some showers. How significant? If you're really looking for rainfall, um, if you're under a storm, it could, you know, you get your 15 to 25 mil out of that. Otherwise, it could be between 1 to 10 mil. Um, and then it's really disorganised and isolated and it really settles down uh, in the western half um, in the evening. Um, there might be a little bit of activity around, but nothing significant and really really eases by kind of late in the night. There's going to be a bit in the eastern half of the state. There's quite a bit of rainfall that's going to fall. So when does that arrive? Um, and that's, that's happening actually from, from about five... The, the first band is kind of sweeping it to... Uh, sweeping it through with that other. So from 2pm, it's a band right across the state kind of hitting uh, the western half a slightly uh, earlier and then it moves across. So that will that sweeps across the state from about 2 to 5 o'clock, but then it persists in the northeast and down through um, the eastern parts of the state all the way uh, into late evening, whereas in the western half it's not going to be as significant. So if people are looking for the same rainfall that's coming in the west, uh, in central parts it's not going to happen, unfortunately. 
And then so with the eastern half, there was a question from Gary in Northwood just about how significant the rain would be for for storage like Lake Eildon and what that means for, for the Goulburn River. Are you expecting flood warnings of any type to come from this rain event? We're, the flood team are monitoring closely. Um, like we're looking at the, they're doing their modelling uh, based on, the, you know, the the model data. And at the moment, they're expecting some maybe river rises by Sunday. It's a little hard to tell because the rainfall could be related to thunderstorms, and they're very hard to predict and where they're going to fall. But at the moment, you know, we're seeing. I'm predicting in some eastern catchments, you know, anywhere between 15 to 35 mil. Um, uh, so it could be on the low side for some of them, and they won't see. There's still some that are a bit dry, some are a bit wet. So right now, it's not looking like a super significant event like we had a, a while back where I think we had like 200 mils. You know, it's going to be on the lower end, which is going to maybe cause some minor rises, but um, at the moment, that's not where it's at. However, next week on Wednesday, um, it's a much more sustained rainfall event coming, um, so that's something to look out for maybe we can talk about there's a, another low pressure system forming um and that will move over us wednesday and really create a lot of widespread rainfall across the state on next week. all right take us through the take us through the weekend what's the weekend looking like over those days and we'll move towards wednesday now let's go the okay. full forecast okay awesome um so, uh, obviously today, humid, we've kind of gone through today. Um, please keep an eye out in the west for the thunderstorms and heavy rainfall, like intense potential flash flooding in the Wimmera and places like that could happen today. So keep an eye on the warnings. There will be thunderstorm warnings coming out uh, uh, periodically today as they pick up thunderstorms. So uh, an eye on the west for that. Um, in terms of uh, Saturday, um, we're looking at... Uh, just looking here, heavy rainfall and showers and thunderstorms. Um, daily totals uh, essentially 15 to 25 mil in thunderstorms in the central and western districts and 25 to 35 mil in the northeast districts on Saturday. So a little bit of activity around as, a, as this system moves east. Uh, Sunday um, the, we'll see the, uh, the system move into the uh, eastern half um, and into the Tasman Sea and that will um, bring some heavy rainfall more in the East Gippsland and northeast, but that may totals 20 to 30 mils at most, but mainly on and south of the ranges. Um, and, so, and west and south Gippsland will see a little bit, uh, as well as east Gippsland. Um, so that's probably, you know, it, conditions will begin to ease progressively during Sunday. Then we a ridge kind of moves over us temporarily uh, and we'll see some southerlies kind of Monday, Tuesday. That brings in some cloud in the south and we'll see some, you know, light falls, light showers from that southerly flow, um, you know, one to five mil. And then... Tuesday, there's this feature. So we've got this upper feature in the bite that's going to move over South Australia, combine in a trough. We get a lot of heat troughs, which is a low pressure formed by the heat of the land. That This upper feature will move over that trough and spin off a low pressure system. And that low pressure is going to slowly move over the state Wednesday. And... But, you know, at the moment, it, it could be much heavier falls, more in the central parts and potentially eastern parts um, uh, on Wednesday. It's very hard to tell, so I wouldn't like to give a figure, but it would be more significant than what's going on this weekend. Oh, OK. So that is certainly one to watch. 
Yes. And and Lincoln, I suppose then warnings wise, um, as we go into the weekend, can you, you you mentioned that severe weather warning that's out at the moment? That's sort of that strip south of Owen to north of yes, Portland. That one, yeah. yeah, yeah. But uh, much else we should be aware of either today or into the weekend. Warnings wise. It's really uh, it's more of a rainfall event than a thunderstorm event, so there will be some thunderstorms. Not expecting a lot of heavy um, winds out of those thunderstorms, but um, if there is, there'll be warnings to show that. But yeah, where the, the warnings at the moment pre- predominantly are going to be heavy rainfall warnings, and that will be able to give the communities understanding where it's about to fall. They'll be done rapidly as as things happen, and particularly this evening, there's potentially some some warnings that will come out, and even early tomorrow morning we think the rainfall could happen some overnight as well so keep an eye on that thunderstorm asthma is always a worry and we've, we've issued a high alert for Mali and Wimmera for those with um, uh, you know asthma uh, to be aware there's definitely potential gusts in the Mali and Wimmera that could do that uh, today um, tomorrow uh, it's going to be more moderate it's more of a rainfall event tomorrow than heavy gusty winds so um, we're going to stick this most of the state in moderate thunderstorm risk, thunderstorm asthma risk tomorrow, and then it, there may be a moderate risk in the northeast and east Gippsland on Sunday for thunderstorm asthma. There's a, a, few, a little bit of winds around in the east Gippsland coast for a marine wind warning, but really the story this weekend is all about where's the rainfall going to be, is it going to impact the catchments, and everyone's monitoring really closely. Well, we thank you for taking so much time to go through it all for us because it is so important to our listeners. Lincoln Trainer, thanks for joining us. No problems. Take care, Warwick. Senior forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, Lincoln Trainer, there, answering as many of your questions as he could. Uh, hopefully that helped you. Um, you're always welcome to send in your text, 0467 842 722. Bo says from 2 o'clock that rain was coming to the northern and the eastern parts of the state, so the 3 o'clock wedding might be... A little tricky, but as you know, these things can be patchy. So good luck with that wedding you're heading to today. Uh, Tim wanted us to ask about the Tim Boone uh, Fair tomorrow, trying to make a call for the Artisan Food Festival uh, on whether it goes ahead or not. I'm sorry I didn't get that, to t- that, Tim. If you can give us a text on Monday and tell us what you decided to do. And if it goes ahead, how well it went, we'll be happy to read it out on your behalf. Thank you very much for sending that through all the same. We better keep moving because we spent a lot of time then on the weather, as we should, because I know it's important to you. But let's talk about red meat producers, their sustainability, uh, more uh, importantly financial, but also environmentally, which was up for discussion in Bendigo yesterday. Hundreds of those involved in the red meat industry gathered in central Victoria for their peak research and development body, Meat and Livestock Australia's updates conference and annual general meeting. Uh, Jane McNaughton caught up with Jason Strong, the managing director at MLA, and he said a key focus was future prosperity and to embrace and improve environmental sustainability. It's such an important thing for the community and consumers. There's a lot of unknowns about it as well. And while it's a significant opportunity for our producers, levy payers, the livestock sector, it also creates a fair bit of concern as well. Because of our focus on investing in research and development and marketing for the red meat sector, we've got an obligation to support the industry, but also help them be prepared for what might come next. So investing in how we better understand the sustainability requirements but also opportunities, what are the things that we can do to enhance our production to make us more productive and and profitable as we go down that path, but also how do we better understand what are the opportunities and challenges, so what are the things that contribute positively to our sustainability and what are the things that give us a challenge and put all that then together 
in a way that can that producers can then use that and you know apply it in their businesses. How do you suggest that the sustainability goals balance with profitability? Yeah, so this, it's a real challenge, isn't it? When something comes along that's new that we don't understand that well, and it feels like somebody's going to make us do it or do something about that. So trying to find a, the right perspective and then get the right balance about what what do we do about it. And I think there's some really good examples today about two really key areas of activity. So one is better understanding. So things like the carbon calculator, getting information together or having a, a mechanism, which is and there's an online calculator that you can find on the MLA site, and that gets you to put in information from your enterprise or your operation, and it helps calculate a carbon footprint for you. That does a few things. So it gives you a bit of a position or a baseline, which is interesting. But probably more important, it it actually gives you some perspective about the sorts of things that contribute to that. So understanding what those things are, I think that that's that's really important. That also then leads to, and if I was interested in doing something different, what might I do? What are the things I might be able to shift that would make a difference to that? The other point that was made really well by the panellists is this direct connection between productivity and sustainability. We want to be more sustainable and being more productive goes hand in hand with that. How can we be more productive to you know, reduce our cost of production and increase our outputs for the resources that we, we're currently using that actually makes us more sustainable? So being able to make those sorts of connections, so understand better what those inputs are, so trying to demystify a bit of that conversation. Then also, so if you want to do something about it, then being more productive is one of those things, and that, that's certainly got to be a good news piece. So finding ways that we can demystify that conversation a bit, but also stop it being as scary and confronting as well. Do you think that it's going to become more important to get ahead of the game as far as initiating sustainability practices before there is sort of like government in- intervention? It's a really important point about this balance between what we're doing and what's required by governments or others. And the, the red meat livestock sector, we've been in front of the game for a while. So setting the carbon neutral by 2030 goal in 2017 was still you know, one of the most ambitious things that's been done by any industry. And there's plenty of discussion about you know, how, that, how that is going and, and the goal itself. But most importantly, it got us on the path of understanding the sustainability environment much quicker and better than so many others. And it also got us on the path of investing in things that help us drive productivity at the same time as understanding how we interact with the environment. So that puts us in much, much better shape and keeps us in front of this potential of somebody else coming along and requiring us to do stuff. So whether that be from a policy point of view or whether it be from a customer point of view. So one of the things we've got to do really well as an industry is we've got to tell the story, we've got to share our credentials, we've got to promote the things that we already do. And I think that's one of the arguments that a lot of producers make is I'm already sustainable or I'm being told that I'm not looking after the environment by somebody who hasn't taken the time to even have a look at what I do. And I think that that is one of the things that is really challenging for the industry where some people have a perception that agriculture's not necessarily environmentally sustainable or environmentally sensitive, whereas it's in both of those things. You know, the agriculture in Australia and agricultural production now covers so much of the land mass and we're incredibly conscious of being sustainable and looking after the land, making sure, making sure that the land and country's in better shape after, after us. 
That is Managing Director at Meat and Livestock Australia, Jason Strong there, uh, speaking to Jane McNaughton at the MLA Updates Conference and Annual General Meeting in Bendigo. You'll hear more stories from that over the next few weeks. In fact, I'll put a longer version of that interview online in our podcast feed. You can either find that in the ABC Listen app or just search uh, Victorian Country Hour on an internet search engine you'll see the episodes of the show there it'll pop up in there later this afternoon for you we'll keep moving right now though on the country i'm conscious of time and i wanted to bring this to you because i wanted to step back in time to end the week to the 1930s when it would take more than an hour to harvest one acre of wheat in mildura on wednesday a group of machinery enthusiasts got two 80 year old strippers and a header up and running for a harvest demonstration, and I wish I was there. Elsie Kennedy was there, though, and spoke to President of the Tractor and Machinery Club of Mildura, Alan White. We're having now the second year of uh, getting some old wheat harvesting uh, equipment out and running, and you can see it running today. It's pretty noisy. The tractor's going past us at the moment, so we'll just step back a few feet. Could you describe for people who are listening on the radio, they can't see what's going on, could you describe this machine for us? Uh, well, the one that's going past now is an early model sunshine header, so it's actually got a knife in the front and it cuts the stem of the crop, being towed by uh, W4 International. Um, it's uh, technically a more advanced machine than the other two which are here, which are strippers, which pull the heads of grain off the straw. So the first one's a header and the, the other two are strippers. What's inspired all of this where... We're out here with two, they're pretty old machines. You've got them working again, or you with a few other people. Oh, yeah. well, What's inspired it? Um, look, we've just got the old tractor and machinery disease. It's as simple as that. And, you know, some people get their kicks from doing all sorts of strange things. Um, we, we do it when we get some of this machinery running. And it's a lot better, at least I think it's a lot better, to see something like that working today than it is just sitting in a shed walking past it. You know, it's there, it's running... That machine's 80 years old. It was designed to be towed by horses when it was built. And uh, there it is. It's running there. Pretty good. There's quite a few people here at the moment. Maybe 20 people. They're watching. They've got their cameras out. What's that like to, I guess, bring that history alive? Oh, look, I think it's probably the the reason we do this. You know, this is... It's visual. It's action. You can see things. Not on the radio, unfortunately, but... um, yeah, an 80-year-old machine that's running, and people will remember it, or they'll remember their grandfather having one. And the machines are still working. It's not a bad effort. You know, how many of today's headers will be working in 80 years' time? And what does it tell you about the change in machinery over that 80-year period? Well, personally, I'm glad we did move on from these. Um, you know, the better seats and, and cabins and air conditioners and things like that are good, but I... I I've got an incredible respect for what people did with these machines, you know, 80 years ago. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they did it fairly tough, if we're honest about it. And, um, you know, let's just acknowledge that. And those machines did the work. One of the people who came out to see the harvesters in action was Stuart McKee, a retired farmer from Cowangie. These particular harvesters we got here at the Mia, I never ever worked one, but I've seen them going. And uh, so they're... Uh, pretty unique. Where have you where have you seen them going? Oh, on our farm. We used to have, we had the, the one like that, an AL, that's an AL there, and uh, the one in front of us, I'm not too sure what it is, making a fair bit of noise at the moment, bang, bang, pop, yep. <laughs> it's, uh, it's uh, I don't know, 
just a chance I heard it was on and a friend said come out and we'll go and have a look so that's what we're doing yeah yeah and, and what's it like seeing them operating in 2023 when the last time you saw them was um you know quite a few decades ago yeah, well, it's good to watch to see them. I mean, to see it's great that people are still keeping them going and showing, uh, uh, you know, showing uh, people what farming used to be like back in the olden days. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And what was it like? Like how we're in a, just to give people a bit of a picture, we're in a paddock about 10 kilometres south of Mildura at the moment. It's, what, about an, about an acre or something? No, it's pretty small. It would be three or four acres here, yes, that's a... Well, patience. The crops possibly going. I'm, I'd guess about maybe three, maybe four bags. It's a, a bit of a just a uh, a hobby, I'd say, by the look of it. That, uh, but it's great to see that it's still, you know, that people are still doing it. And here we've got a man in front of us here now that's starting his tractor up with a crank handle. I haven't seen that for 50 years. <laughs> how, how long would it used to take to do a paddock this size and with these kind of machines? Ah. Oh. <laughs> we probably used to get I'm not looking, I couldn't be sure but probably five or six acres an hour you know whereas nowadays I get 50 or 60 or 70 acres an hour with one machine but it'd be wide there's three going here at the moment and they would be those three together would possibly be or oh, maybe wouldn't be 30 feet they'd be 24 feet perhaps something like that and uh, uh, so now that's not even half a header that's retired farmer Stuart McKee uh, ending that report from Elsie Kennedy. We do have a market on a Friday today at the moment anyway with the split Hamilton sale. Here's Chris Agnew. Thanks, Warwick. Hamilton agents yarded 8,000 sheep today, representing an increase of 3,000 on last week's sheep market. The quality was very good with a strong selection of heavy and trade weights available. Crossbred ewes once again dominated the yarding. However, there was an increase in the number of merinos on offer. To an animated buying panel that was very active, lifting the market some 15 to $20 per head. The market was stronger over most categories, with the exception being the very light sheep. The general run of mutton realising between 180 and 200 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Crossbred ewes sold to $60 per head, the well-covered merino ewes selling to 45 with the merino weathers topping at $50. Hoggets topped at $50 per head. At Hamilton, this is Chris Agnew reporting for MLA. Thank you very much for that, Chris. Just before we get going for the week on the country, our uh, Peter, our father Peter at St Matthews in Albury he said in a text going, oh, don't mind the rain coming, but we, we want to wish Will and Bella a great afternoon and maybe a dry wedding when they're getting married at 4.30 this afternoon at Coral. I can't promise that, but hopefully Will and Bella have a good wedding and a shout-out from the country hour anyway for you on the day of your nuptials. I hope you have a shout-out to you all, a great weekend as well, and I hope the rain avoids you if you need it too. It's one o'clock.